Well, welcome to tonight's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. And my name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Uh, for those of you who perhaps never listen to the shows, they run every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, we're both licensed medical herbalists who graduated in England with a master's degree in herbal medicine. Um, we provide a wide range of medicinal herb extracts from our own CCOF certified herb farm. And we consult with clients uh, all over the states uh, on wide-ranging subjects, uh, many of which we've discussed uh, on the show even. So um, once again, very pleased to have Dr. Ray Pete with us uh, to share his wisdom. Uh, just uh, got his, new, his latest newsletter. He does produce pretty prodigious amounts of uh, <laughs> written work, and I know some people sign up for his newsletters, and I know there's been a bit of a shortage with his newsletters uh, in terms of reaching the uh, uh, production that's necessary to fill people's desires, so that's good news, but and bad news in some ways. Um, so, Dr. P, are you on the, uh, on the line with us? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I th- what I think I want to do uh, is just let people know um, that the show does run 8 till 8 o'clock, it's a live live program um, and I just want to let people know that you sh- and normally we open the lines from 7.30 to 8 o'clock uh, but just like to bring that point open now where if people want to call in because uh, I've got some questions here from previous uh, shows that people haven't been able to get on um, on air to ask the questions and they've written them to me, emailed them to me so I've compiled several of them and there are others I know that are out there that <clears throat> perhaps if they listen to the show now they might want to call in uh, any time so the number, if you want to call in, if you live in the area, there's a 707 number. That's our area code, 707-923-3911. Uh, and for those people, and I was written to by a gentleman in Australia uh, earlier on today, uh, said it, he's had trouble getting through to the uh, either the uh, internet line. Uh, but there is an 800 number. It's 1-800-568-3723. Although international callers would want to use the 707-923-3911 yeah. number. That's correct. Or if I'm not too sure what people do with uh, uh, internet-based calls to the show. I'm not too sure if that's... Does that happen? People call in on, the, uh, on, on Skype numbers? No. Okay. All right. Okay, so there's the 800 number. 800-568-3723 or a local number 707-923-3911. Um, okay, so for tonight's show, uh, we're going to open up um, parts of uh, previous shows uh, based on inflammation and Dr. Pete's current work looking at uh, autoimmunity, uh, linking that to estrogen, linking that to est- uh, inflammation, uh, and how the whole concept of cell energy is something that he's uh, constantly advocating with thyroid hormone as one of the pillars, uh, not forgetting things like progesterone, pregnenolone, um, vitamin D. Obviously, there's plenty of other supplements uh, and nutraceuticals that we're going to be mentioning as we go on. Um, but, uh, Dr. P, uh, would you, just in case people that tune in, we do get them uh, fairly consistently. They've heard the show for the first time or they heard the podcast for the first time. Uh, they've heard of you for the first time. And I was speaking, or rather was written to by a lady who'd uh, first uh, discovered your works in 1990 and has been following your advice ever since. So there's a wide spectrum of people. Uh, would you just outline your background, your professional and academic uh, background? Um. PhD uh, study at the University of Oregon at 1968 to 72. Uh, before that, I had been a graduate student and teacher in uh, linguistics, uh, philosophy, psychology, English lit, among other things. Uh, and uh, 
I, I see that one of your uh, questions uh, from last month, I think, was uh, about the trophoblast theory of cancer. Right. And uh, just when I was starting in my biology study in 1968, I had known uh, a famous old uh, cancer genetics researcher, Lionel Strong, and uh, he was uh, studying the uh, curability of, of uh, cancer, mammary cancer in, in the strains of mice that he developed by uh, different types of liver extract. Hmm. And uh, in, in thinking about that, I realized that there might be an overlap with the work he was doing with the, uh, the old John Beard trophoblast theory of cancer, which was behind the lay trial treatment that was oh, for, for almonds, almond seeds, okay. And uh, the, the, uh, the lay trial uh, 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 activates a process that uh, uh, its proponents uh, saw just as a poison uh, for the cancer cells. But uh, since it involved activation by the enzyme uh, beta-glucuronidase, which happens to be an enzyme that activates estrogen, hmm. I saw a link with uh, uh, Lionel Strong's work in which uh, the, the cancer-prone animals inherited from their mothers uh, the prenatal gestational conditions. They inherited uh, a tendency to have high estrogen. And when he used a liver extract, the animals that he treated with the liver extract not only didn't get cancer themselves, but their offspring for several generations didn't get cancer. And is that because of the vitamin B6 in the liver helping their um, he, bodies he believed estrogen? It was uh, 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 one of the nucleotide fractions uh, that it, uh, has analogs in, in the uh, mainline cancer chemotherapy, but uh, he believed it was stabilizing the DNA, uh, but my impression was that uh, there were uh, anti-estrogenic substances in in the liver, and uh, some of them uh, were also the nucleotides that Lynn L. Strong was talking about. Uh, but anyway, uh, the um, the trophoblast theory, even though I think it's uh, wrong in its details, it, it's extremely rich in in its overlap with the actual facts of how cancer develops. So it, it, the estrogen factor that Lionel Strong was working on and the, uh, the role of enzymes uh, such as beta-glucuronidase uh, that the late trial theory was based on uh, overlap with, with the trophoblast theory. And uh, the, the main treatment that people used uh, going by the beard trophoblast theory, uh, the um, ex, uh, pancreatic enzyme or extracts of the pancreas uh, were a main, main part of that ther- therapy. Okay, so uh, I have a couple of questions that I want to ask you about what you just said as your statements. So you mentioned now the um, product Latril that some people listening might recognize as the uh, uh, seed kernel extract from um, 
almonds? Is no, apricots. No, apricots, sorry, apricots. Okay, so wasn't the rationale for that that it would break down the sugar linkage and release cyanide, and that's why how it was a kind of a... Uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, the Krebs idea <laughs> that it was poisoning. Right, right. It was, his theory was very nice, <laughs> except that it was a theory for yeah. uh, the layer trial that he defined as the... Uh, uh, glucuronide, right. the molecule that he published, had the glucuronic acid on it, which would be specifically released uh, by uh, uh, cancer cells, or, well, by any inflamed cell, but would um, be poisonous only to cancer cells because they lack the ability to detoxify cyanide. Right, right. Now, isn't uh, beta-glucuronidase uh, an enzyme that breaks down the beta linkages, sugar linkages? Um, yeah. And, yeah, and the glucuronic acid happens to be how uh, toxic substances are uh, detoxified for excretion uh, by the mm-hmm. liver through the kidneys. Uh, estrogen glucuronide is the ex- excreted, one of the main excreted forms. Hmm. It can be sulfate or glucuronide mainly. Okay. And I have a great liver mushroom pate recipe if people want to make that for the holidays. <laughs> and the mushrooms have anti-estrogen compounds yeah. in them, too, if you boil them down really well before you cook the liver with it. Yeah, we mentioned the, uh, uh, you've mentioned in the past here, the uh, button mushroom extract, which has been uh, used as an aromatase inhibitor. Um, so that's another interesting point. The uh, wanted to get in later on, uh, tying these things together because there are lots of lots of different herbs that have compounds in them that show anti aromatase activity, and um, that's very interesting in the concept of treating cancers. Um, there are plenty of uh, literature out there uh, from Native American cultures to cultures from other countries that use uh, different herbs for carcinomas in situ uh, for skin cancers for you know solid cancers abdominal uh, etc organ based cancers um, and it seems like quite a few of the instances that there is an aromatase inhibiting activity within that uh, herb and that's probably uh, probably would best explain by your understanding and um, what you've written and that would be um, a estrogen suppressing effect um, I guess we, we'll get into that a little bit later on but I just want to run these questions um, by you from people who ha- to, uh, tried to call in previous shows and the number again if you live in the area is 707-923-3911 or there's an 800 number is 800-568-3723 uh, Dr. Ray Peets uh, joining us once more and if you want to email me for the liver pate recipe it's Sarah S-A-R-A-H at westernbotanicalmedicine.com alright so I had a couple of questions uh, based on um, sugars uh, and one of them uh, was does dextrin- dextrinization and protein coagulation change complex carbs into simple sugars um, do you know much about this uh, dextrin- dextrinization um, yeah it is a process that uh, has been used for about 200 years uh, the, the first form of it was uh, basically what uh, they used to make uh, caro syrup, uh, corn syrup, uh, boiling cornstarch with sulfuric acid. <laughs> and uh, it, it makes a wow. uh, 
pale, uh, uh, almost clear syrup, but the longer you cook it and the harsher the uh, acidic or basic conditions are, the browner it gets. And uh, the um, ordinarily, when you talk about a browning reaction, yeah, I was about to question you. Uh, molasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know that uh, the brown stuff in molasses is mutagenic and carcinogenic. Right. Right. Just uh, like any charred carbohydrate is, right? Or charred starch or sugar. Uh, yeah, and uh, generally there, uh, when you uh, sort out the uh, cornstarch from the, uh, the germ, you're still getting enzymes and there are amino groups uh, spread throughout the, the starch. Uh, part of the grain, and those amino groups uh, participate in the classical browning reaction uh, that makes these uh, mutagenic carcinogens, which have a brown color. Hmm. Uh, so uh, the, um, the, the dextrinization uh, produces some dextrose, some simple sugars, but uh, that that's a matter of uh, how sweet and uh, liquid it is or how viscous and mm-hmm. gummy it is, okay. uh, uh, depending on how far you carry the uh, breakdown reaction. So uh, on average, uh, dextrins are considered to have uh, uh, mainly uh, uh, groups of, of glucose molecules that are uh, around 10, 10 uh, molecules long, mm-hmm. uh, five, 5 to all right so um this is a process and that could change complex carbs into into relatively simple sugars but not so simple because the simple sugars obviously like things like glucose uh, fructose sucrose etc just single units subunits or yeah. two yeah the gumminess of it uh, corresponds to the amount of starch left in it uh, broken up starch makes uh, turns the solid starch into a a semi-liquid gummy material. Got it. So like cane juice, when you've ever, if anyone has ever had cane sugar juice, fresh juice, it's very um, thin, very, very thin. There's like basically zero starch in that, right? Uh, the, the refined cane sugar? Oh, no, just if you have like fresh sugar cane, cane juice. Yeah. Or you just, they juice the sugar cane and they give you a little... Um, yeah, the, the sugar... It's very thin. Cane, it, it contains sucrose itself, so you don't need to process that. Right, but I'm just saying that's why cane juice is so thin, whereas corn syrup is so thick because it yeah. still has a starch in it. Yeah. All right. And just uh, just to recap there, any anything really to do with uh, temperature and starches involving caramelization is uh, is it can definitely be termed as carcinogenic in terms of the uh, makeup of the caramelized products. Um. Uh, yeah. At, at least as far as the. Uh, the com- combination with amino groups and amino acids and proteins. Uh, right. Those are the best known mutagens. Right. Um, so burnt uh, toast? <laughs> yeah, acrylamide turns up in, in every time you, you heat a, a natural carbohydrate that contains <clears throat> traces of amino acids or proteins. And uh, in the absence of... Uh, amino acids instead of acrylamide, you probably get uh, small amounts of acrolein, which is another 
very toxic right. carcinogenic material. Yeah. And what about um, protein like meat and eggs when they brown? Is that also carcinogenic? Um, there are traces of, of sugar in those, and uh, so you do get some of the same uh, compounds. All right. Well, another question was, uh, do amylase or amylo, amylopsin help change complex carbs into sugars? I know amylase, but I'm uh, not too familiar with yeah, amylopsin. Yeah, that's just a pancreatic Got amylase. It. Okay. All right. So this is the amylase would be like a salivary amylase. Okay. All right. So that was that was those two questions. Um, I had I had some other questions from another person um, based on um, diet and um, you know recommendations for diet. They've been a long time listener. They were also uh, um, quite aware of uh, your favourites in terms of uh, foods, uh, from basic orange juice to uh, the, your constant advocation of uh, carrots, grated carrots, uh, and coffee for uh, B vitamins. Um, in terms of general nutrition, I just wanted to recap for those people that maybe haven't listened too much before, but um, in terms of calories for uh, a female, uh, what would you rate as being generally acceptable calories for relative, relatively sedentary type work, just so we can understand uh, those people that perhaps if they look at their food uh, caloric intake, they'll probably recognize they're getting far too many, many calories and that what is actually realistic uh, to burn in somebody's healthy metabolism versus the calories they're getting from food. So what, what do you think is a caloric intake for a female? I hope 2,000 is a ballpark. Okay. For, but, um, you can be very sedentary and still burn close to 3,000. And uh, some people can be moderately active and mm -hmm. get along on 1,700. Uh, and uh, lots of people now are, are hypothyroid enough that they can <laughs> uh, move around uh, with uh, just ordinary daily activity and still gain weight on seven or 800 calories. Wow. So you really have to look at your metabolic rate. And also if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, I know when I was full-time breastfeeding, I think I probably ate 3,000 a day. And didn't gain weight. No, and yeah, maintained yeah. weight. Yeah. Okay, how about, um, how about proteins in terms of someone's uh, intake for a female, for example? Uh, the um, uh, military uh, did a big study on... Um, people um, mostly of military age in their 20s, uh, both men and women of all the different sizes that uh, are in the military, and found that uh, to do just ordinary work, office work or whatever, both men and women needed at least 100 grams of good protein every day. Right. But you see lots of people getting by on 25 or 30 Grams. And I've known people uh, always with pretty serious symptoms sure. who were getting only 20 or even less grams per day. Right. Now, do you'd expect things like uh, tissue uh, repair to be poor, uh, muscle mass obviously not to be in, in evidence, um, and difficulty maintaining skin, nails, hair, that kind of thing with uh, low protein intake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's hard if you're a meat eater. You could say, oh, it's easy, but then you don't want to eat that much meat. You don't want to be eating meat three times a day. It's too much meat intake. So then you really have to rely on eggs, which you can't eat any more than two eggs a day because 
they contain some PUFA. And so then you're left with dairy. So really, I think dairy is the primary source of protein that's healthy for people to be getting. Yeah, well, I know you advocate gelatin a lot in terms of uh, protein content and um yeah, but that's not going to make up to yeah. 100 grams of protein no, no, no. when one 8-ounce glass of milk has 8 grams. Okay, and then uh, what do you recommend for sugars? Um, it really depends on your um, digestion, your intestinal health. Um, when I was in Mexico, I, I saw a lot of uh, nutritionists uh, trying to justify a, a bean and rice-based diet. And uh, uh, there are lots of reasons that you, you can't get along very well, on, even though the amino acids seem to be equivalent to protein. It turns out that uh, potatoes are infinitely better than beans as a, a source of protein. But uh, that requires, either of those require that your intestine be in fairly good health uh, because the... Uh, complex carbohydrates of either of those uh, can uh, support bacterial growth if, if you have a sluggish digestion. Now, are we talking about uh, juicing potatoes and cooking uh, it? In no, the, just no. Or, just well, it, it, yeah, if people were going right. to eat potatoes sorry, as a source sorry. of protein, they better have a pretty strong yeah. intestinal wall. Right. Otherwise, all that starch know, will irritate them. Yeah, because I know yeah. you advocate potato uh, juice and use that in a double boiler to make a kind of scramble. That's actually starch-free, isn't it? Yeah, that's for yeah. people who have a digestive problem but still need a, a very high-quality protein. Yeah. Okay, so uh, just to recap in terms of the amount of grams of sugar for somebody in, in um, a day to be... Uh, if you... <laughs> the, the studies that I've written about uh, in the late 1800s, uh, they found that diabetics were putting out uh, about 12 ounces of sugar uh, in extreme uh, with terminal diabetes, they had about 12 ounces of sugar in their urine every day as glucose. And so uh, they reasoned that they would die less quickly if they uh, replaced that amount of sugar that they were losing. And so they gave them a regular diet plus 10 or 12 ounces of uh, plain white sugar and found that instead of dying more slowly, they got well. And uh, so it depends on your um, what stress your system is under. Um, huge amounts of sugar like that can be curative if you're under stress and need something to compensate for the stress. But uh, if your digestive system is very healthy, you can get along uh, just with starch instead of sugar. But you, you still need... Uh, a few hundred grams of carbohydrate, either as starch or sugar, every day. Yeah. So, like, I we had a client who had broken his knee and ankle and had very extensive surgery, and he was needing, I think, up to 400, I think a pound of sugar a day in various forms, you know, marshmallows and homemade marshmallows, sugar in the milk, in order to sleep, to lower the amount of stress as he was recovering um, when he got out of the hospital, that was what he needed to sleep. And, of course, he weaned himself off of that when he got better, but initially that was very curative for his sleep and his healing. I've seen similar things in people with cancer or 
just extreme old age uh, insomnia uh, when they drank a little uh, syrup-like uh, concentrate of, of uh, sugar in milk or uh, ate a bowl of ice cream during the middle of the night, they could get back to sleep. Yeah, he went from not sleeping at all, like waking every hour and just completely restless and in pain, to sleeping all through the night just from increasing his sugar. Okay, so um, in terms of uh, in terms of a uh, daily diet, and I do get I get this question pretty uh, pretty often in terms of uh, it's new to people, and so they think initially the uh, diet is pretty restrictive. Um, we've kind of produced a. Um, uh, a three-page or thereabouts uh, breakdown of foods that we know uh, from you and what you've uh, researched uh, that is healthy, thyroid-supportive, uh, anti-inflammatory foods, uh, and those kind of foods that are definitely to be avoided. Obviously, the polyunsaturates, uh, which really kicked off this entire thing uh, with you, with us, seven years ago. Um, in terms of, I even ask you personally, what, what kind of foods that you would uh, you typically eat, just to uh, throw that out there, and then uh, we'll break down some of the foods here that may be not obvious that people uh, probably don't eat too much of that they don't know they can, uh, because it probably sounds like it's too uh, either fattening or you know sugary or too, uh, yeah, too, too problematic from another perspective. But what kind of what kind of foods do you typically gravitate towards that uh, keep you going? Um, two or three quarts of milk, up to a gallon of milk per day, yeah. uh, usually 1%, yeah. and uh, usually one big egg uh, fried in butter, typically, uh, and uh, orange juice, uh, as much as is available, if it's good, uh, at least uh, oh, a pint, preferably more good sweet orange juice and uh, uh, typically uh, about once a week some oysters or some liver uh, almost every day some kind of gelatinous soup uh, uh, tail soup or uh, uh, sometimes uh, chicken soup with all the fat skimmed off mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, so that's, that's kind of key key ingredients. So, Sarah, I mean, because the person asked, they, they said they were very uh, aware uh, from listening to you and having uh, they fe- they came across you in the early nineties. They said, and they've been uh, paying attention to you uh, ever since in terms of your books and uh, newsletters. But they re- what they were asking for, which was uh, kind of in some ways it was a little strange because they would have thought by now they would have recognized all the kind of foods that you do gravitate towards but we've produced a pretty extensive list of those foods that are thyroid suppressive uh, that people don't always recognize whether it's beans nuts seeds uh, you know and that kind of um, typical uh, polyunsaturate rich foods that would have a thyroid suppressing effect um, but i know sarah's a very good cook and you do make some <laughs> excellent food and so uh, i'm very very lucky to have that. So I don't ever find there's any sh- uh, shortage of variation. I mean, every now and again, obviously, we eat lots of different cheeses. Uh, we drink a lot of milk and orange juice. Um, we, we eat milk powder pancakes every morning that I make ahead of time so I don't have to make them every day. And that's a pretty easy recipe if you can find some good organic non-fat milk powder. Do you? How often do you eat the milk powder pancakes, Dr. Pete? Oh, every day when uh, we have the... Uh, powder supply uh, 
then we run out of it and don't need them for a few months. Now I know what to get you for Christmas, Dr. <laughs> Pete. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we usually have one meal. I try to tell my clients that if you spit, split your meals up into proteins, you're going to have your liver or your oysters or your meat or your broth because it doesn't have to be heavy on the protein side. Then you want to have that with one meal. You want to have your dairy, like whether it's cottage cheese or homemade ricotta cheese is really easy to make, or your milk powder pancakes, and you can make them savory too and grill them with melted cheese on top. Also, you can do, you know, Greek yogurts. There's some good organic Greek yogurts that are very, very high protein and not sour. And then you have your egg meal. And I tend to like eggs for lunch rather than breakfast because of the blood sugar-lowering effect of the eggs. I feel it's nicer to have something sweeter like the milk powder pancake for breakfast with coffee rather than having eggs with coffee because both of those things lower your blood sugar. And then all the uh, all the bone broths and the uh, the, the types of uh, meats that are certainly uh, good for you in terms of not being purely muscle meats, like a brisket uh, has an excellent uh, excellent saturated fat layer on it. And, and then uh, lamb shanks are nice to roast. Um, oxtail, like Dr. Pete talked about, that's very gelatinous. Otherwise, if you have ground meat, I just sprinkle a little extra gelatin in there and maybe some leftover drippings from a roast I made to to moisten it up and to give a little extra gelatin. Okay. Anyway, but that was one of the uh, one of the questions asked by somebody. And incidentally, uh, if people want to contact us uh, anytime, uh, Monday through Friday, uh, you can either write, best thing to do actually is probably write an email uh, to either Andrew or Sarah at westernbotanicalmedicine.com. And we do have a, uh, we do have a pretty extensive uh, uh, sheet that we've produced, about three pages or so. And it's pretty much based around thyroid supporting and thyroid suppressive foods. So it gives a pretty good overview. And okay. for sugars, yeah. I, want, I, want to, I mentioned the proteins. For sugars, mm-hmm. I like to use honey. We have our own bees, and that's great to get a good raw honey. Otherwise, there's lots of honey available. And sugar in milk or orange juice, honey or sugar in milk, orange juice, ice cream, um, fruit when it's in season. Right now, we're getting some really good little tangerines and satsumas. We have a whole bunch of apples from our tree that are really ripe. It's just important when you eat fruit that it's from an organic source and it's a ripe source. I know, Dr. Pete, you talk about how a ripe apple can be okay, but an unripe apple that was picked unripe can be very disturbing to the intestines. Lots of the fruits in supermarkets aren't properly ripened. Uh, Even plums uh, are sometimes uh, hard to digest and allergenic. And things like dried prunes, you have to experiment with them. Because a lot of them will give you gas. Dried fruit will give you gas, and it's just something's wrong. I don't know. What goes on with dried fruit? What do they do wrong? They use unripe fruit to, before they dry it, Dr. Pete? I think so. Uh, when the uh, uh, polymers haven't broken down, uh, they will feed bacteria rather than the person. So you'll know whether it's easy to digest because if it isn't and it's not good for you, you'll be getting gas. Yeah. Isn't that a pretty good rule of thumb, Dr. Pete? Okay, we're getting on to uh, another question. One one more thing I just want to mention is milk. It's a very good source of a high-quality sugar, lactose. So, you know, one glass of milk has 12 grams of sugar. One glass of orange juice has 25. So you can add extra sugar to your milk to make up your quota. And I basically say 150 grams a day is like a diet level. Wouldn't you say so, Dr. Pete? Um, 
Yeah. Well, uh, for uh, an active person, for someone sedentary, maybe that's the right amount to maintain. Yeah, and, and the lactose in in milk is famous for um, helping to absorb the calcium, but some studies indicate that uh, fructose or sucrose can serve the same purpose and uh, spare the uh, calcium in your diet, so you can be uh, deficient slightly in in uh, calcium and make it up by having enough sugar to keep the stress down so you don't waste your calcium. And also, Dr. you've said that people who think that they're lactose intolerant because when they drink milk they get terrible gas and indigestion, you can re, not re, almost retrain your digestion, but basically remanufactured lactase so you can break down the lactose. It's just if you're not drinking milk, your body will stop producing the enzyme to break it down. It's as simple as that, just science. And so, especially if, if a person is hypothyroid, the intestine it has uh, trouble producing enough enzymes. And and also has trouble producing enough stomach acid and all sorts of digestive problems you you'll develop with hypothyroidism. So if you just take a tablespoon a day, and if you're really sensitive, you can start with like a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon, and every day increase it. Within a month, you'll have a full spectrum of enzymes because that's what it takes. When you, if you've studied pharmacology, you'll learn that it takes a month to fully manufacture the amount of enzymes, but Dr. Pete, you were saying that it might only take two weeks. Uh, yeah, especially if your thyroid is good, you can change your en- enzymes more quickly. And then the more you drink, the more enzyme you'll make, and you'll be able to adjust to it. So it's not like you can't ever eat dairy or eat cheese or drink milk again. I just had another question here I wanted to get um, by you. It's uh, pretty quick. It won't take too long. I'm not too sure um, where they were going with it, but red LEDs, I know we've done shows on red light, they wanted to know if uh, red LEDs uh, would be sufficient for red lights as opposed to the uh, 250 uh, watt heat lamps that normally we're recommending. Um, probably uh, at least some of the, uh, the wavelengths um, are enough to reactivate the uh, respiratory enzyme and, and that's one of the best known but crucial uh, effects of, of sunlight, uh, incandescent light, and some of the uh, LEDs. Uh, the respiratory enzyme uh, copper atom uh, in the darkness, it uh, tends to uh, be displaced from the enzyme, uh, causing uh, failure of the respiratory system, and the red light has just the right amount of energy to move the copper back into its proper oxidizing position. Okay, cool. So, so red LEDs will work, and then if uh, people have them, that's all well and good. Otherwise, uh, red light from a good source 250-watt heat lamp. Okay, well, we have our first caller here, so let's let's take this next uh, call and see where, where you're from, caller. What's the question? Hello, you're on the air. We can hear your TV, so we know you're there. Hello? Yeah, hi, you're on the air. Hi. Okay, um, I want to know what you think about uh, being a vegan. Vegan eating... Go ahead, yeah. 
I, I, I know Dr. I'll let Dr. Pete answer the question. Uh, you know, it's very popular now. Being a vegan means you don't eat anything from an animal. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any way you can eat that way and be healthy and I've, get I've, enough protein and vitamin B and all that? Yeah, let, let Dr. Pete answer it. Okay. I've got personal uh, experience with this, but I know Dr. Pete's got a lot more. So, Dr. Pete? Um, the closest you can come to it would be eating uh, potatoes and mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms are very similar to animal protein, and uh, the um, your intestine can make vitamin B12, which is sometimes deficient in a vegan diet. Uh, and so uh, with the uh, trace minerals of, of mushrooms and the high-quality proteins and vitamins of potatoes, uh, you can do pretty well. But uh, most vegans don't do very well. What, what do you think they're really deficient in, Dr. P, in terms oh, of... Oh, calcium. Yeah, uh, there you go. Um, they break bones too easily once they get to be 60 or 70. Yeah. Well, what is the advantage to being a vegan? Um, I think it's usually an ethical thing. They don't like to bother their animal neighbors by eating them. There you go. Yeah, it's mainly mainly an ethical uh, consideration. Oh for... yeah, they they don't want to eat killed animals yeah. or yeah. Uh, from big agribusiness and that sort of yeah. thing. But I mean, yeah, living in a country, I mean, you can have your own goats and chickens That's and that right. sort of yeah. thing, and mm -hmm. you know, raise everything you want. So yeah. kind of, I mean, other than that, I mean, from a health point of view, it doesn't seem very healthy at all. Um, and I once yeah. heard that there was no. Um, like natural uh, indigenous cultures, let's say, uh, that were that were vegan. There were some that are vegetarian in very hot countries where I guess it's hard to preserve meat and there's lots of fruit available and there'd be a bit different balance if it's really a hot country. But that um, there's no place where you're going to find a vegan diet among indigenous people. Is that true? Um, some people have studied the Fulani people of, of Africa and found that they were pretty close to vegan but very sick, lots of heart disease. Wow. So you mean from uh, like atheroma, from some kind of what, polyunsaturated damage? Probably because of the calcium deficiency. Oh, okay. Calcium is good for your heart? Very, very important for your heart. How much calcium do you need 2, uh, 000, a day? 2,000 milligrams a day, which is basically two quarts of milk, so you can... You know, break that down if you wanted to do yogurt, cottage cheese. I take additional eggshell powder from my own eggs. Ground up in a coffee grinder as fine as you can get them. A quarter teaspoon is about a 600 milligrams. I, coffee has calcium? No, sorry. I grind the eggshell in a coffee grinder oh, to shell. make powder. But coffee has some minerals in it. Yeah, you say that coffee is good. I drink a cup of coffee every morning. Good. I think three or four would be better, but not in the morning. But anyway, thanks for your call. All right, thank you. Okay, we have another uh, caller on the air. Let's take this call away from, and what's your question? Um, um, Spyrock, um, I was wondering about the correlation of a high dairy allergy, and I'm also a vegan. So what will I do for calcium and protein besides the potato every day? What about eggshells? Oh. I was just talking, would you do eggshells or not because that's from an animal? Um, yeah, it's... Oyster shell, well, that's another animal, I guess. Um, hard to swallow, isn't it? 
it, it, but you can put it in capsules. I just swallow it down with a little water. It kind of forms a little bolus, and it's easy to swallow it once to. And you can't get it from, like, vegetables. Well, so you leafy, can boil greens. Leafy greens, if you cook them thoroughly and save the water, are a good source of calcium and magnesium. How much? How much do you think you would have to eat if you were t- if you were strictly vegan and this is how you were going to get your calcium? About uh, a pound, I think. Okay. You'd have to pound boil a green. pound down a day and then drink all that water. I think so. Yeah. And another way to help get the minerals out of the greens, especially those with oxalic acid, but even with kale, is put baking soda in it. Okay. And that helps neutralize oxalic acid because oxalic acid that's in spinach and chard blocks your absorption of the calcium. Okay. And you'll notice they cook much quicker, and the liquid goes very dark colored because of the minerals that are leaching it's out of very the tasty. cellulose leaf into the into the. What about the protein intake? The protein. I mean, the fruit does have some protein. The potatoes. How many pounds of potatoes would you have to eat a, a day, Doctor Pete, to get? Would you say five pounds? Five pounds. Yeah, there you go. So you could eat five pounds of potatoes, or you could juice those potatoes better still if you didn't want to physically eat the bulk of five pounds of potatoes. And are a lot of nuts bad for you? Say that again? Was that nuts. nuts bad for you? No. <laughs> well, yeah, nuts have a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids that are very estrogenic. So a lot of nuts is not good. That's correct. And better to have more seeds. Uh, seeds and nuts are both very high in polyunsaturated fatty acids. They're not a great source of protein. I mean, what do you think about the protein in nuts compared to the protein in beans and legumes, Dr. Pete? Oh, uh, some of them are slightly better. But um, the um, only nuts that I know of that are uh, fairly safe for the, the fats would be the macadamias. Uh, they're pretty saturated fat. Macadamias are the better one. Yes. I don't know what the protein content of macadamia nuts are, though. Yeah, it isn't very high. Okay, well, thank you for your call, Paula. Okay. And uh, just a side note about that potato juice. I have made it. Have you made it, Dr. Pete, too? Where you scramble the potato juice? What was that? Where you juice the potatoes and then you separate it from the starch and you scramble it. Yeah. It's pretty tasty. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, with, with it's pretty much like um, ash potatoes <laughs> yeah. when you put butter on it. Yeah. Right, and the and if you let the potato juice, I, I noticed I had to let it settle, so all the starch went to the bottom, and you can tell, like, you know, if you put cornstarch with water, the starch falls to the bottom, and it's you can feel it, it's starchy. So with potato juice, it's the same way. The starch falls to the bottom, and you have this juice on top. And you just pour that juice that's on the top. But you have to let it settle. Don't use it right away. And it's almost, it's all protein, isn't it, pretty much? Um, well, once the uh, water's gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the slimy uh, part of the juice is, it, it should be uh, sort of like egg white, uh, depending on the type of potato. Some of it is, is very gelatinous and uh, cooks easily. The others are uh, kind of watery and uh, you get a, a mushy mashed potato effect. Okay, so we it's have probably the waxy versus the flowery yeah. potato. Yeah. Okay, we have another caller here. So uh, let's take this next caller. Call away from, and what's your question? Um, Bob in uh, Willits. Willits, hi. What's and, your question? Uh, we got, we're getting involved with uh, fermented vegetables, cabbage, and, uh-huh. and all kinds of uh, fermented vegetables. We're doing it ourselves, and it's just terrific. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it really straightens up the floor in your, in your gut. 
and throughout their whole digestive uh, tract. And what do you think about uh, fermented vegetables? And I'll take the answer off the air. Okay. Thanks for your call. Dr. You. Pete, did you hear that caller's question? Uh, not most of it. Uh, fermented what? Vegetables. He said he's been getting into making his own fermented vegetables, and what do you think about that? Oh, uh, some of them taste very nice, like sauerkraut, but uh, I don't think there is uh, much nutritional value in them, and there's a risk of uh, getting bad uh, fungus uh, contamination in them. Uh, in in uh, Asia, uh, where fermented vegetables are very popular, uh, they've seen a lot of, of stomach and throat cancer that they think comes from the uh, fungal contamination of fermented vegetables. Hmm. And what about the lactic acid content? Um, uh, yeah, lactic acid puts a burden on your liver to turn it back into glucose. It takes more energy than you, you get out of the glucose. So you think it's more nutritious to boil the vegetables rather than ferment them? Yeah. And what about the pro- the, uh, the caller also mentioned about the gut bacteria? The probiotics. The, the, the small intestine, I think, is best when it's cleanest. Uh, very uh, vigorous people with, with good digestion and high thyroid function have almost a sterile small intestine from, the, from their mouth to their uh, appendix, basically. There, there's nothing growing. Uh, so they get uh, a chance to absorb all of the nutrients without competing with bacteria then in the healthy person the bacteria grow just in the colon uh, so you don't want to uh, support uh, bacterial growth higher up in your intestine the the h pylori pylori is uh, an example of uh, much too high in the digestive system for bacteria to live i okay. just had a throat swab done and it was uh, they, they couldn't find anything and my throat swab. <laughs> so the doctor said there's something wrong because your mouth is sterile. Anyway, we have another caller. I just wanted to put out the number again uh, for those people that listen to the show. We've got them to 8 o'clock here. Uh, Dr. Ray Peets uh, very kindly joining us again. Uh, okay, number is 707-923-3911 or 800 number for those folks, folks in different parts of the states. Uh, 1-800-568-3723. So we have another caller on the air. Caller, what's your question and where are you from? Yes, Colorado. Colorado, welcome. And the question is, how would I find out if my methylation is interfering with my vitamin D absorption? I tried a therapeutic dose, a higher therapeutic dose of 12,000 I used for a couple months, and I did bring the level up to 73, but my symptoms persisted. That I'm trying to figure out what to what to do. I went from thirty to seventy-three. Okay, so so Dr. Pete, did you did you hear that? It's a little bad. The line's not that great, but I'm you, sorry. That's okay. Methylation. Yeah. Does, how would I know my methylation is working? Dr. Pete, um, methylation in general. Uh, I think she's in relation to B B vitamins. No so. D. I'm sorry. D as in dog. Oh D. Yes. I beg your pardon. Okay. I know, because I was saying, I just wrote a note to Andrew. I said, what B vitamin? Yeah. 
Okay. No, it's D. D, vitamin D. Well, have you had your vitamin D blood level checked? Yes, I did. It's 73. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so that's, plenty that's pretty, enough. That's good. So what, in terms of methylation, you were saying, because I thought we were dealing with um, uh, methylating uh, vitamin B12. and Right. Being an I issue. understand that the receptor sites of vitamin D may recede if your methylation is not correct. Hmm. Dr. Pete? I, I would guess that any symptoms you have that are related to uh, vitamin D might be from not having enough uh, calcium and uh, magnesium or maybe having too much phosphate in your diet. Okay. Um, it, it's important well, to have uh, more, uh, on a molar basis, more calcium than phosphate in the diet, and uh, Americans often have five or six times too much phosphate uh, relative to uh, calcium. Because of the high meat intake right. and the high starch intake and the high yeah. bean right. and grain well, intake. Well, I've been about nine months without any uh, uh, one, one meal of some meat a, a day. But, uh, and what about calcium? I drink about two or three quarts of milk a day. Good. Well, that should be adequate for calcium. Yeah. What are the symptoms you associate with the vitamin D? I get a headache in the middle of the night. What about sugars? How much sugars are you getting a day? I get lots of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> you... I, dr- I, I drink milk all night long with sugar and honey. Uh, um, and I eat mar- marshmallows. It used to be coffee that would take the headache away, but now I found marshmallows help better. The gelatin? Do you yes. eat, eat any uh, uh, antiseptic fibrous food like raw carrots? Yes, every day. Every day. What about your thyroid function? Have you tested your temperatures and pulses? Yes, I can only keep it up to about 98. I can't get higher than that. Well, there you, I, that's a, that could be a big problem because if you're... If you're below 98, you could your immune system's at like half power. It's only 50 percent functioning. Exactly, and so I think I have some kind of mycoplasma. Hmm. I've been taking the tetracycline low dose for about six months now, hmm. and uh, it has not changed it. And so I was thinking I was going to have to. Uh, Did I they identify what mycoplasma it was? Like, not you, yet. I think I'll do a nasal swab and try to find out because it seems to be uh, connected to my trigeminal nerve, neuralgia. Okay. What about your liver function? Liver function has come back to a normal function because I've been on this diet. Yeah, that's not definitely diets in a uh, month. Have you, have you tried aspirin? I do. I'm up to three aspirin three times a day. I, you, I take every... Six hours. Are you taking vitamin K? With vitamin K, yes. Yeah. Well, Good. What, about, what do you think about the thyroid function helping helping the... How much how much thyroid do, do I take a day now? I'm up to... It doesn't one really... But... 1, 1.75, yeah. I'm up to one, gra- one grain... One and three 1.75. Right, so how it and is... And I take the T3 also with meals and between meals. How it works with thyroid is some people need, like, two micrograms. Some people need 200. It depends on yeah. your body. And you, the way the best way to tell is with your ankle reflex. 
Yes. And also with your temperatures and pulses. And if you can't get your temperature up above 98, then Not easily. you don't have enough thyroid, basically. Unless I have a bad stress day, and then it'll go up. Yeah. Well, then that's just adrenaline raising it. But Real you'll high. notice it will that's fall I, fall after meals. Exactly. exactly. Uh, sometimes a, a mysterious headache can be traced to a single supplement or a, a single food that you might yes. have only once a week. Uh, causing an allergic irritation. Yes, I I think I'm, I found that the microbial enzymes in cheeses, and I try to find the very best I can find. I'm I'm going to eliminate that and see if that doesn't make a big difference. Because you can definitely find cheeses. Uh, it's just not it's not so much a plug, but it's just a fact that Costco uh, do actually sell some very good European cheeses that oh. are made with animal rennet and not microbial ah, enzymes. Thank you very much for that. And the two cheeses that. Um, we know are made with animal rennet are the Parmigiano Reggiano, the, right. the very hard Italian Parmesan, and then also the sheep, and that's cow's milk, and then they have a sheep's milk Pecorino Romano. Uh-huh. That's Those are both very traditionally made cheeses, and uh, people that have sensitivity to cheese don't find any problems with those two. Very good. Thank you for that suggestion. I'll keep on going, but I appreciate all the help you've given me. Yeah, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for your call. Thanks. Okay, well, it looks like we do actually have another caller who's calling in now, so I didn't um, I didn't get a chance to really ask you any questions, Dr. Pete, about this month's subject, but that's not a problem. I'm glad people uh, have got their answers to their questions, and there's one more person here who uh, their call is being fielded to see if they actually want to pose a question or they just have comments. Yeah, it does. Okay, so let's take this next caller. Call away from, what's your question? Hi, it's Scott from uh, Ontario, Canada. Ontario, and, uh, Canada. Right. My question, I'd have two just quick ones, hopefully. Mm-hmm. When uh, raising calcium um, and getting heartburn, okay. what would be the cause? And yep. secondly, what to do for oily skin? Okay. So wait a minute. You said you when you increase your calcium intake, you get heartburn? Yeah, you... so if I'm drinking two quarts of milk a day and having lots of cottage cheese and then trying to use extra eggshell or calcium carbonate and then getting like a heartburn reaction. Do you, do you know if you get it specifically just to the eggshell when you take that in isolation or without food, though? Are you aware of that? Or do you the take... Only... Or the cottage cheese, if it, it's it's very acidic. Yeah, it seems to be only when I add in like the extra, like the supplement of calcium carbonate or eggshell. How much how much eggshell are you taking? Uh, about uh, half a teaspoon. Half a teaspoon. At okay. a time or during the day? At a time. Yeah, that might be too much at a time. Bit, yeah. I take like an eighth of a teaspoon at a time, but then I drink a lot of milk. So if people don't drink milk, then you'd need to take like a quarter teaspoon at each meal with the food, after the food. And, you, but yeah, you definitely want to take it with food because I've, I've I have, yeah, I've noticed people. Quite a lot of people talk about upset. Uh, dip- but it's usually more loose, loose. It causes their stools to be loose or hard. But, Dr. Pete, what would you think is contributing to this gentleman's heartburn? Oh, um, lots of people get uh, stomach irritation from uh, calcium supplements and magnesium supplements, anything manufactured or in a, an excessively pure form, uh, the eggshell is is almost a pure calcium carbonate, and your, your stomach and intestine have trouble with pure chemistry. Uh, the, the more mixed uh, a substance is, like milk is... is extremely complex and so it's very soothing to the uh, digestive membranes but any pure chemical uh, 
It sounds like a good rationale against pharmaceuticals. <laughs> yeah. OK, so the question about the heartburn, what do you think of that? And then oily skin, I think, was the other part of the question. Um, in general, oily skin is very good. It uh, ages very slowly. Uh, if you have uh, oily skin when you're 25 or 30, you'll probably have young-looking skin when you're 60. Just because it's metabolically so active in general, hmm. so it signifies a good thyroid function in terms of the turnover, or uh, usually, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, so did you have any other comments about the heartburn though from that uh, caller regarding the calcium? Was well, the caller still on the air? Uh, I'm still here. Yeah. Well, did you take that egg, Jean, empty stomach or after food? Uh, no, I take it with food. Okay, well, maybe it's just too much at once. What do you think, Dr. Pete? Half a teaspoon at a time is maybe a little intense? Yeah, I would just skip it for a week and see what happens. I mean, if you're getting two quarts of milk plus some cottage cheese, you're probably good. Yeah, I think I am good. I'm just trying to really push that uh, calcium phosphate ratio. Well, how much, fo- how much yeah. meat are you eating a day? Uh, I'm not doing any meat right now at all. I'm doing right. basically all dairy and uh, fruit cooked fruits. Well, that's a diet very low in phosphate. Dairy is not high in phosphates. Yeah. He's trying to increase the calcium to phosphate ratio by bringing his phosphate consumption down. How much are you taking vitamin D at all? Yeah, I do take vitamin D, vitamin A, E, and K. Yeah, especially up there in uh, Don't take too much A. Sometimes vitamin A can be irritating to the intestine. I, I had to stop using it orally several years ago and use it only on my skin. There you go, because it's fat-soluble. So and it's thyroid-suppressive. How much A were you using a day? Are you using a day? It, it depends. I try to do it orally or uh, transdermally, so usually maybe 5 to 10 every couple of days, 5 to 10K. That might be a little bit too much for your thyroid function because if you ate 4 ounces of beef liver, it typically has on average about 10,000 units, and you would want to eat 4 ounces of beef liver once a week, so that might be a little bit too much A. Okay, well, thank you for your call anyway. We, we're right to the top of the hour now, so it, uh, it's kind of coming to the close of the show. Appreciate your time. Thanks okay, very much. you're welcome. Dr. Pete. Are you still there, Dr. Pete? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us again, the uh, last show of 2016. Uh, we'll look and see. Gee, I think by the uh, third Friday of next month, we might have a new president and we might have got through the ups and downs of the. Uh, contentious uh, ongoing electoral results with the college uh, and it's yet been, to cast their uh, final vote on the 19th there but and it's been um, it has been eight years didn't dr pete first join us on the show in 2008 i thought it was seven but yeah okay well you said it has only been seven years but yeah it's no, more than that yeah it was 2008 yeah dr pete thank you very much for your time